from MIT Technology Review. I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is telemedicine. The coronavirus pandemic has led to more collaboration between healthcare providers and increased the use of digital technologies which allows doctors to safely connect with patients virtually and to monitor them remotely. This is prompting changes in medical devices, from clinical research to physician training and education, to doctor and patient use, and informing new technologies that are coming out. Two words for you, open source ventilators. My guest is Dr. Laura Mowry who is the Vice President of Global Clinical Research and Analytics at Medtronic. Before that, she was an interventional cardiologist and clinical researcher at the Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston, and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's also one of the world's leading experts on clinical trials. Dr. Mowry, thank you for joining me on Business Lab. Thanks, Laurel. It's great to be here. So let's start off by talking about your primary research before you joined Medtronic. Bio says here that you led clinical trials to evaluate novel medical devices and pharmaceuticals. Could you give some examples of what medical devices and how they are used in healthcare? Yeah. So I, I practice as an interventional cardiologist, and I also was very interested in how do we make sure that um, we're treating our patients with the safest and most effective therapies and that we're also continuing to advance healthcare? It's been just an incredible past couple of decades, I think, in, in cardiology where we've seen miniaturization of devices and movement towards less and less invasive procedures. So some of those areas include the use of coronary stents to treat patients with heart attack or um, with uh, chest pain as a way to um, save lives in, in the setting of a heart attack, but also avoid more invasive procedures um, like open heart surgery. Um, and then similarly, using catheter-based valves uh, to be able to open uh, narrowed heart valves that prevent blood from flowing to the rest of the body, um, which is a complex surgical procedure, but more and more is able to be performed through um, small catheters through, through the blood vessels instead of doing open heart surgery. So these are complicated areas where um, when these technologies are first introduced, the, you know, the first aim is to make sure that they can be performed safely um, and to test out those therapies, but then really to better understand um, the benefits that patients might derive from them um, in different settings. What is um, an overview of how a device goes through a clinical trial versus, say, a pharmaceutical drug? Yeah, um, a medical device is, it's interesting because the, the background leading up to medical devices involves so much technical engineering and then understanding um, how the devices perform in animals. But it's really not until the devices are in the hands of um, expert uh, physicians and then used in real settings, taking care of patients that we really come to understand the feasibility of a device. So usually um, a medical device will start out in a simple study to make sure that there's a proof of concept, essentially. Does the stent open the blood vessel effectively? Does the valve open the valve effectively um, and safely? And then um, the next step is to make sure that the patient gets benefits from that. That is, do they avoid 
having heart attacks or strokes or stay out of the hospital more frequently or avoid having heart failure as a result. And those things are measured in um, cl clinical trials, which can be randomized to be able to compare to what the standard of care is. Um, that's That overall structure is not that different than it is for drugs. The main difference though, between a drug trial and a medical device trial is because the devices are so um, mechanically based in general, uh, we have a good sense of how, how they work before we go in. And so there are fewer questions perhaps about um, less predictable effects of a medication, for example, where we may not understand the biology quite as clearly or the side effects of the medication. Uh, with devices, we tend to have a lot more bench testing and understanding of the mechanism of action as well as the potential um, side effects. So you could actually volunteer to be in a medical device trial, just like you could as well if your doctor was um, recommending it for a new pharmaceutical drug or something like that. It, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that one of the challenges that we face that we'll, maybe we'll talk a lot about a little bit more is how do we make it easy for people to find those trials? If you have a medical problem, how do you know that you might be eligible for a trial? And that's something that's becoming more and more easy now that there is more information available digitally uh, uh, to be able to connect patients with the trials. Do you, I'm thinking about how you would have a medical device trial. Is it sort of um, a simulation that, that the, the device itself goes through, that you can sort of record the results to make sure the machinery itself works correctly? And then when you implement it into the human, it's, it's more of the assumption of knowing how now the, the body works itself and then the device works itself. So you can, like you said, better guarantee a health outcome because you have done extensive testing on the device. So you, you have a very good idea of how it's going to react. Unlike, as you mentioned, the pharmaceuticals where there could be a host of possible side effects. Yeah, I don't want to. I, mean, I don't want to oversimplify. You know how clinical trials are done for medical devices because um, we don't know everything. That's why we do these. That's why we do clinical trials. We usually have a a good sense of the mechanics and the engineering um, based on the bench studies and the animal work, um, and then some of these medical devices, as you know, things like um, like pacemakers and other electronic devices, we're able to record information directly from the devices. Um, that being said, at the end of the day, what the patient cares about is how they feel um, and what the results are to their to their life and how they experience life. Um, and those are things that we can't really assess except for by asking a patient or checking with their, you know, what their health outcomes are in their follow-up in their medical records, for example. And so the, the clinical trial um, really does come down to um, the patient experience and how it's improved. As you mentioned, the one of the purposes of this device is actually to help gather data and improve the outcome for the patients. So how does the medical device help doctors and healthcare practitioners use that data to improve outcomes? Well, when you think about something like a pacemaker, for example, the, the way the pacemaker works is that it's constantly monitoring what the heart rhythm is doing, um, and then it's adjusting 
uh, within the device, what the output of that device is to correct the heart rate um, if it's too slow, for example. Um, in other situations, there are other heart devices that will treat fast heart rhythms that are dangerous to the patient. Uh, but they're doing that based on a closed loop system, essentially of sensing what's going on um, and then applying the appropriate treatment. And that's all being done automatically within the implanted device that's, um, that now is less and less um, invasive, to be honest. They're smaller and smaller and sitting right you know, within the heart. There are similar devices to manage diabetes uh, where there's sensing of the blood sugar and then uh, application uh, within the device to be able to release the right amount of insulin to correct a low blood, uh, high blood, blood sugar and avoid a low blood, blood sugar. Um, and then there's similar devices uh, to treat things like Parkinson's disease um, or different types of pain syndromes. These are devices that are collecting information all the time and responding real time. There's been incredible innovation in making these therapies able to provide the right adjustment internally without even having any um, direct interaction with either the patient or the physician. And so those, the ability to sense and apply a therapy is constantly evolving and developing in, in many new spaces. And it is really very exciting. That's a, a really interesting phrase, sense and apply, because that gives this kind of impression that the devices are now smart enough to do that with, like, as you mentioned, without the intervention of a human. So again, it's, it's not necessarily a form of uh, artificial intelligence. What it is, is what they, the device will, will understand as being basically correct behavior or incorrect behavior. And that's how the device decides to correct the behavior. Is that a simplification of it? Or is there artificial intelligence involved? No, it's, it's, you got it exactly right. Um, I think it's interesting that you brought up the comments about artificial intelligence because you're right. Classically, it doesn't involve artificial intelligence. Um, it involves a, you know, an algorithm that's programmed into the device that is fixed. But that being said, more and more, we are developing applications of artificial intelligence that are learning either within um, the, the patient data or across multiple patients' um, sets of information to be able to apply um, artificial intelligence, many of your listen listeners will know, depends on the access to you know, excellent and, and high fidelity data and large amounts of it, as well as access to the outcomes that we're trying to, to impact. And that's really what, what has become more and more possible is collecting better and better data, being able to collect it across multiple patients um, and being able to uh, to start to apply that to outcomes. And so um, therapies like image recognition, for example, are pretty advanced in that regard. And we now have um, methods to visually recognize um, things like intestinal cancers and really make it simpler to detect those things. And those use artificial intelligence. And then also in the diabetes space, where I was mentioning before, in the past, we relied solely on the blood sugar measurement to adjust um, the application of the therapy insulin. Um, and in a way that's reacting to something that's already happened in the body. But by using AI, uh, we hope to be able to integrate um, things like what a patient is doing, their activity, and what they're eating um, in terms of the types of foods that they're eating and how that, how that can be predicted to later impact their sugar. And therefore, um, know what the action should be even um, 
even before the sugar starts to change. So I think it will get us to better and better therapies um, over time. That's astonishing. It makes sense though, right? Because you, I don't know, we are very familiar now with kind of inputting calorie counters into our phones or um, Fitbits and Apple watches and having these kind of personal health devices around us all the time. But you could, with those actions of a regular consumer becoming very used to something like that, um, it's not too much of a stretch, right? To say your doctor may prescribe you someday an app that helps you um, actually account for the food that you eat and the activity that you do. And that will then help or be one point of information through your entire uh, health ecosystem. And that's what we're striving for is to be able to put together these multiple sources of information that we know impact uh, patients' lives and you know their experience um, through better management of their illness. Those have sat you know, traditionally in multiple different locations and haven't been linked together. So the more that we can do to bring these good sources of information together and really tailor the therapies, I think the closer we'll, we'll get to continuing to improve care. So just to kind of stay on that a little bit, I know the Fitbit and Apple Watch mm -hmm. kind of is a, is a little bit of a distinction between a, a medical device that's used for, you know, healthcare purposes. But it's not too much of a difference there because the, those consumer health devices are becoming smaller and easier to wear and they're tracking more of our data every time there's a new release of them, right? So is it possible that um, there is some kind of, of hope to have this consumer device, telehealth and remote monitoring at some point all combined? Absolutely. I think we, I guess the first thing is to make a distinction between consumer health and a, a medical uh, device. Um, the Fitbit or the Apple Watch give, you know, interesting information to individuals um, to be able to observe, you know, your heart rate in response to something. Medical devices really are at a higher, held to a higher standard, right, to actually show an impact on a, a medical condition um, that improves the way that patients are, are feeling or the way that they're be able to perform their, their activities or, or even be life-saving in the case, you know, of uh, somebody who requires them, you know, to survive, which is the case for many of our technologies. Um, so there is a pretty clear distinction between the two. That being said, there's value in being able to use these um, consumer devices to be able to understand how, how people are doing. When I think about things like telemedicine, those are things that exist. You know, most people think about using Zoom as a way to be able to talk to their doctor for their healthcare visit. Um, and, and that that's a really new thing. The truth is that we that we've been looking at telehealth for quite some time. Um, you know, you look at people who have pacemakers to keep their heart rhythm normal. They are used to doing monitoring through the. This has been true for decades that there have been uh, ways for them to monitor their devices through the telephone. Now, because of Bluetooth technology, we can now have them interrogate their devices through an app on their phone. And by making it that much easier, we actually see better and better outcomes uh, because we can look for dangerous heart rhythms, but in a much simpler way and without really being as cumbersome um, for, for patients. So I think there's a real value to remote um, methods um, that that are getting better and better through, um, through technology. Hmm. 
That's a very good distinction to make. And, you know, something I think as uh, consumers just want to have that better understanding and perhaps just behave better, right? Like now I, I care enough about my health and, and these are the devices that I'm using. And, oh, I sort of understand how um, a much more complex and specific medical device may also now be used to, to help me um, in ways that perhaps 10 years ago even uh, we wouldn't have seen before. So kind of to zoom ahead to this obvious focus of this day and age right now, which is how is telehealth actually being used during the COVID-19 pandemic? I just have a, a short story here. I had to have an x-ray taken this week. Um, nothing to do with COVID except the fact, of course, it's a very different experience right now going to see a doctor during a pandemic. And while I was in the room at the x-ray machine, the nurse was in the hallway with this extended cord that came out of the x-ray machine and she shut the door and she took the x-ray from the hallway. And it made me think about how physically close you usually are to your doctor during a visit. So there's clearly a need to create a safe distance, physical distance between a healthcare worker and a COVID-19 patient. But how is it actually prompting companies like Medtronic to change the way that medical devices are used? Are there longer cords <laughs> or is the assumption that some of this can be done yeah. uh, remotely by other devices? I got interesting um, pivot when you're used to being so close in the same room with your patient. Yeah, I think that you're right. So the pandemic has highlighted um, the need for these types of solutions and has really accelerated the, the application of these innovations, many of which, you know, were well underway already. Um, and in other cases, it's actually pushed for new, new, totally new innovations. So I guess maybe starting with one of the examples that I think is the most exciting. Um, you know, as, as you know, uh, Medtronic manufactures ventilators. And in addition to um, simply dramatically increasing the production of ventilators over a few months, the other need, you know, that, that we, clearly saw from, from physicians um, was the ability to take care of, of patients uh, without going in and out of the room frequently. Um, the physicians right now and, and nurses in an ICU have to go through really very cumbersome procedures to put on gloves and masks and gowns and, and to, in order to protect themselves from being infected, as well as to prevent transmission to others in the hospital. One of the things that we collaborated with Intel on was the ability to to manage the ventilator um, completely remotely, so not not through a cord, completely remotely, so that uh, one could program the ventilator to change. Uh, when you have these acutely ill patients who are dependent on a ventilator to keep their respiration going, it's not uncommon to need frequent adjustments from a technician, and now that technician could do that safely outside of the room. So, I, and that that kind of innovation happened in a matter of weeks. Other types of innovation, you know, already were of interest to us before, um, and and simply um, took off because of a greater need in, in the during the pandemic. And so, those are things like um, having uh, Bluetooth enabled um, devices to treat patients with life threatening heart rhythm disturbances. So. Um, like I was mentioning pacemakers before there's, there are other devices that are more, um, sophisticated that require, that are for patients who require, uh, monitoring for those dangerous heart rhythms, not just slow ones, but some of the dangerous fast ones. Those can now 
be also managed remotely. And that's important because it much of the barrier, I think, for patients to be able to receive the care they they needed during this setting was related to the obstacle of trying to avoid contact um, that between uh, people during this social distancing time. Um, and by being able to perform procedures with a minimum amount of physicians in the room, not requiring a technical expert in addition to be able to program the device and being able to do that from outside the room, it really is helpful for patients, but also for the healthcare providers who are doing the procedures. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about that. You're right. It's not usually just one person in the room with you, of course, um, and especially in a, a complex situation of, as being admitted to a hospital um, with a obviously very serious disease. So the techs who usually run the machines do it from outside the room. Does that also help them scale? Because obviously during a pandemic, uh, there can only be so many techs on site in general, um, shift work, et cetera. But then does it help kind of improve the way they can give care because they can do it um, a little bit more easily to many patients all at once as need needs must? Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a great example of how something that became a necessity out of something that we didn't necessarily anticipate, a pandemic, that that then becomes something that has value going forward, in, you know, even after we recover. Obviously, it's good to have these things in case, um, you know, the, the need for this uh, for in future pandemics comes up again. But like you said, more importantly, um, it changes our ways of thinking about how how care is provided, how how healthcare work is performed, that more and more things can be done at at larger scale um, and more efficiently by having these these innovations. And you know, just to take it a little bit further, you know, one of the limitations in being able to introduce new technology is that these are complex procedures in many cases, and um, we're we're constantly changing. And making less invasive the way procedures are performed, but that that also means training physicians in new new methods. And what's really exciting is that we now can have programming of new devices or education around new devices that can happen across countries. You know, as you know, in the pandemic, travel's been uh, really limited, even across states. And um, by being being able to perform remote training, either through, you know, a web interface or through um, augmented reality type interfaces, we can really kind of be there virtually to be able to support the training of new types of procedures for um, these types of devices. And that's really exciting. And 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 I think what that means to the post-COVID situation is that it gives uh, broader global access to uh, helpful technologies. Um, that might otherwise geographically be difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Are you also finding that, I'm thinking because of uh, the coronavirus crisis hitting countries sort of one by one in this very slow moving train across the world. So for example, would doctors in Italy be able to help doctors um, in other countries, say America, and then, you know, Brazil, et cetera, as the crisis kind of went ahead to each country because they were learning on the spot mm-hmm. and then able to kind of give those best practices and lessons learned forward. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think we certainly saw that. We, we, we had examples where we couldn't have our clinical um, support staff travel to Spain, for example, when they were in the midst of uh, the pandemic, but we were able to provide support to physicians there by having people in other countries in Europe present virtually and uh, engineers um, you know, present for those cases, present from the United States. So I think all of that's possible. You know, as a as a clinician myself and as a researcher, I, I think we can continue to do better. I, I do feel that those those global shared experiences uh, for what's happening in one part of the world, uh, learning from uh, for the next, um, it, it's critically important. Our organization is is uh, global, so we we had the ability to see how hospitals adapted, um, for instance, in China and other parts of Asia um, before the crisis reached um, Europe and the, and the United States and other parts of uh, the world. Um, and that, that was very important learning for us to be able to share um, with uh, the, the medical community that, that we work in. Yeah, that's, um, I can imagine that being thrilling and uh, really <laughs> weighty at the same time, because um, you are taking this responsibility, mm-hmm. obviously, for this enormous community and sharing that information on, as well as learning about it. And I'm sure at the same time, as you mentioned, the whole point is to take, reach a point where teaching these methods and uh, teaching on these devices becomes more of a global practice where it's not just during crisis, it's every day. So, you know, did you, do you feel like you learned something about remote teaching now and then how it can be used in the future to that audience of up and coming doctors in med school, or even just doctors who are, you know, continuing education and trying to learn new things? You know, I think it's interesting. There, there are some things that come really easily at that level of uh, medical education. I, I think when I think about the generation that are in medical school and, and residency, um, they're really accustomed to learning a lot virtually. You know, I think it's a balance. I, I, you know, we won't be able to do all of this virtually. There's a there's an element to the the interaction with patients that's just so much in the moment and um, will be difficult to replace. But everything is getting better and getting stronger in terms of we can see more about how patients are doing. We can hear more from them through. Um, apps on their phone, whether they're directly to the patient or through their devices. And so it's, it's constantly improving um, in terms of how, how much closer we can get to an in-person contact um, through these virtual methods. But I think, you know, as we were alluding to earlier, the, the most exciting thing is that it, in a situation where you might have remote communities within the same country, or geographic locations where there may not be specialists available. This really just takes it a step further, being able to communicate more remotely and in a more specialized way. So it's not just being able to pick up the telephone and it's more than using a video conference call, but it's actually being able to see how a device is programming, program a device remotely um, and educate physicians and, and other caregivers on how to optimize the use of the device um, even without having to send people back and forth across across locations that might make it difficult or cumbersome. You mentioned that um, remote training on these devices is it's an evolving field, 
But is it possible to remotely train on a complex procedure like surgery? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the really exciting areas that we're working on um, is, again, back to the um, the topic of AI that you brought up earlier. It's taking data across multiple surgical procedures in order to use that as a roadmap for individual surgeons to improve their individual care of patients. We have data um, across multiple similar procedures, and that can be used for image recognition. And when that's applied directly during a procedure or to prepare for a procedure, it can help a surgeon who's either in training or doing something complex that they don't do frequently avoid critical errors. Um, so this is, uh, I, I, I think this is just around the corner um, for being applicable. I don't know if it's a full-scale turnover of way, the way that training is performed. You know, the, the model for medical training is really through apprenticeship. You, you see a procedure and then you, and then you, the, the, the motto is see one, do one, teach one. And uh, this makes that process hopefully safer um, as well as more effective and efficient. So that in-person work together with um, a mentor, I think will still continue uh, but I think this is a way to be able to experience things that, you know, you haven't been exposed to and to, to learn in a more efficient manner if one can learn from, you know, thousands and thousands of prior procedures um, through, through data. It's really quite remarkable when you think about how quickly all of this progresses and year over year, the AI gets faster and smarter, the, there's more data where we can get more information from that data and all of it is to really progress, you know, the benefit of, of patient outcomes and help doctors just be better at what they do. Are you just sometimes astounded when you think about when you're in med school and starting out to the progress that is made today and then in 20 years, 50 years, what the progress will be then as well? Yeah, I, I am. I mean, I think whenever you have a conversation like this, you take a step back and you realize just how dramatically the world of healthcare has changed in the past 10 to 20 years. It's very exciting to imagine what's next. And, and I don't think that these things are that far away. Obviously, there are challenges, right? It's the getting the high quality data, being able to make sure it's put together in a meaningful way. There's a lot of work um, in that. It's not simple. But at the same time, um, you know, it's it's getting easier to do that work, um, and yeah, I think it's incredibly exciting. You can you can literally see the progress happening. And when I look back on the last twenty years and think about, we're already doing a lot remotely. We're all already doing just the, t the innovation that's that's happened in terms of the application of Bluetooth technology. But then, even more importantly, miniaturization as well. Even something that seems simple. It's really revolutionary just by scaling down on the size of batteries and the size of um, implantable devices. It makes real impact for patients because smaller devices mean faster recovery times. It means the difference between somebody having to stay in the hospital overnight or staying in the hospital for a week. And when you think about it that way and how quickly that transformation has happened, uh, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to be a part of it. We should bring back in that transformation, which 
I feel really is with your role within the company, right? So Medtronic is a 70-year-old organization. It's been through many evolutions. And then your role, um, you know, sort of being the chief of analytics here. What, what is it like to focus on data strategy? I mean, you're also thinking about it in a bit of a broader area as well. Of course, the data from the device is exceedingly important. How you treat the data and what you learn from it is very important. But like, how do you then really corral all of the data to build a strategy to help evolve the company itself? And then in turn, what you're doing is, is becomes basically the example for the rest of the healthcare community. You know, if, if I had to boil it down, I think it, you know, I, I've, I've been at Medtronic just for two years now before that really worked as a clinician and as a, as a researcher, but I think that the motivating factor there, both for me personally, but also for the work that we do in the company has been to give, to support the advancement of technology as a way to improve health for people. That really is the motivating factor and drives all of the work that we do across the company and specifically motivates how we approach data science. Data science, you know, I think, when you when you think about it, it's not um, and it's not an abstract um, science. It's 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 the application of data skills to you know specific areas of interest, and in this case, um, it's healthcare. Um, and so, you know, I think what's exciting about the company um, and setting is that we have this amazing technology um, that, in many cases, is able to also collect data. Um, and give us this strong link to our patients and also to, to physicians. And we also have this core engineering and data science and medical and clinical expertise. Um, and it's by bringing all of that together that I think we can continue to really have an impact on, on, on health for people. And that's really powerful and, and, and motivating, I, I know for me, but, but also um, really important for the company. So I think we're just in a really unique position, uh, but it's also important to know like how dependent we are on you know partnership with the multiple parts parts of this ecosystem. You know these are the hospitals and uh, patients and um, you know regulators um, and technology experts. Um, and so it's it's through that collaboration that we can make the most um, significant advances that that have the most impact. And I think that's what everyone wishes their job would be, right? You you use the de- the data, you create good things to help people have better health and uh, a good life, right, and a longer life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to to kind of wrap this up, I during the COVID crisis, um, obviously companies have had to step up in various ways. And you mentioned the ventilator project. I couldn't help but hear in the news that Medtronic had open sourced plans for one of the ventilator designs. What, what would that take? What was that like behind the scenes? Was that a complicated, it must have been a very complicated way of, of doing this. But ha- what were the results? What did you see happen? You know, I think so. First, I think the motivation there was just to be able to do whatever we could as fast as we could, and we recognized that our 
most complicated ventilators that we could scale up production. We scaled up fivefold, but it still wouldn't meet the demand that was that was out there. And that a simple design could be something that could be scaled um, by collaborating or even just providing the code to the many companies that were interested. And and, and this was in a period of time, as as we all know, where a lot of manufacturing um, was reduced because of reduced demand for other types of products. So so we wanted to respond to that and be able to supply more than we could do on our own. And that's that's really why there was this uh, real excitement to providing the open source uh, code for how to how to manufacture um, these these ventilators, and it was through collaboration with the FDA that really facilitated our ability to do that because we um, needed to get their approval as well, which happened very quickly. Um, I think one of the interesting learnings there is that even our simpler designs are are pretty sophisticated, and so it the, some of the most successful programs in terms of actually manufacturing the ventilators were through um, collaboration. But at the same time, I think um, being able to provide it and and then see who's able to do it was just a, was just a very a very good um, learning experience. Are you expecting one of the shiny lights that come out that comes out of the COVID crisis is this spirit of collaboration and community and working perhaps a bit quicker than was able you know was possible in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. It's um. It's it's really heartening to see people come together all over the world. It, it, the the one amazing thing about it has been just how small the world seems um, across disciplines, across countries, uh, when we're all facing a a similar uh, foe. So true, Dr. Mowry. Thank you so much for joining us today on what has been a just fantastic conversation on the Business Lab. Thank you, Laurel. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Laura Mowry, the Vice President of Global Clinical Research and Analytics at Medtronic, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma, and I'm the Director of Insights, the Custom Publishing Division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and you can find us in print, on the web, and at dozens of online and live events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. The show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. The Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.